I searched all over for that thing this week. Finally found it. It's after Titus. Where'd my Bible go? Can't even find my Bible. So, yeah, if you turn to, well, Titus is hard to find too. First Timothy, Second Timothy, Titus, Philemon. It's one page, one chapter, and it is a great little treasure. Um, you know, it, it, there really is nothing quite like it. This is a personal letter from Paul to a beloved brother and saint. And Paul's in prison in Rome, and he's writing to Philemon in Colossae, and he's given him some instructions with a great deal of heart, just bleeding all over this, the page of this little letter. Uh, and we get to look into this really cool uh, piece of scripture this morning. So let's, let's pray, um, and then we'll consider it together. Lord, thank you for um, your word. Thank you for the preservation of your word. God, you divinely have kept these letters for us as instruction to us, inspired by you and uh, truthful in every way, God, perfect for us and for our sanctification and salvation and growth in you. Um, and, and Lord, it is an amazing thing to read this. And so uh, we want to we wanna hear from your spirit, God. Your spirit is our guide. This morning, and we want to be changed, uh, we want to be encouraged, strengthened, convicted, uh, and we want to honor Christ in everything we say and do. And so we pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. I think I'll just read this through for you. Can I do that? Um, let's just read these 25 verses. It's a, it's a fascinating letter. It'll give us the context for everything I'm going to say. And let's just listen um, to God's word as I read it. Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church in your house, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers, because I hear of your love and of your faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus for all the saints. And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man now and a prisoner also of Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on, behalf, on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. But I preferred to do nothing without your consent, in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord. For this, perhaps, is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever. No longer a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but now much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So if you consider me your partner... Receive him as you would receive me. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this in my own hand. I will repay it to say nothing of you owing me, even your very self. 
Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Now, confident of your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I say. At the same time, prepare a guest room for me, for I am hoping that through your prayers I will be graciously given to you. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends greetings to you, and so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. What I, I love about Scripture is that there are real people in real situations. This one's pretty gnarly. As we get into it, you aren't going to, this is a really tough one. Uh, living life by faith in and through the difficulties of personal relationships. And what's going on here? And this, in fact, I think this is how we learn truth the best, just as we relate to one another, as we go through the difficulties of life together and figure out how to apply Christian principles to our relationships and the difficulties we're having with people and, and in circumstances that come over. This is when we learn truth. And I love this about Scripture, that it deals with us where we're at. Now, now this morning, I've broken this into a couple pieces uh, as an outline. Uh, first of all, we're going to look at the, just the beauty of God's uh, people, the, the body of Christ. Uh, we're going to see this through these three guys um, in particular, Paul, uh, Philemon, and Onesimus. But second of all, I want to look at some uh, relational principles. Um, and, and there are four. Uh, love is the best motivation for action. Second, uh, sin is a battle for all people. And three, restoration and unity are God-honoring pursuits. And finally, God's sovereignty is an encouraging uh, reality. So there's the outline for this morning. Um, and we'll just charge ahead. So let's talk about the church and the beauty of God's people. Now, look, at this is an amazing thing. Here are three guys uh, that are believers in Jesus that by God's sovereign hand are interacting in history. And, and there are three really major characters in, in, the, uh, in the Bible. Um, Paul, um, he's an apostle and he's in prison in Rome uh, for the gospel. And he's writing a letter to Philemon, a book whom is made, named after him. And Philemon is a wealthy man. Um, he is a business owner. He's a very good friend of Paul's, and he lives in Colossae. Uh, and he's also a slave owner. That's an important part of this uh, this morning. Uh, Onesipus is a slave uh, who evidently ran away from Philemon from Colossae and ran to Rome. <laughs> he probably stole stuff uh, from Philemon as he left and ran. And as he runs to Rome, here's God's hand. He runs somehow into Paul. <laughs> and guess what happens, right? Here's this runaway slave running to Rome, runs into Paul. Paul leads him to Christ. <laughs> he becomes a Christian. And so now here is this slave who's run away, who's a Christian, becomes a close friend of Paul. And now guess what Paul's going to do? He's going to send him back to Philemon. Can you feel the tension of that? <laughs> this is quite a, quite a, quite a story. Now, Paul has, is sending him back now as a brother. He's, he's saying to Philemon, receive him now as a brother. This man's a Christian. And that makes a, a big difference. And so he's sending him back. But I want you to feel the tension of this story. He's, he's sending him back. He, he's stolen from Philemon. So he's going back to a guy that he's stolen from. By the way, that is a capital offense in ancient Rome uh, for slaves to steal from their owners. 
Second of all, he's going back with the stigma of having been in the lowest social class in Rome. And, and by the way, Rome had hundreds of thousands of slaves. And uh, it, we'll talk a little bit more about that in a moment. But Rome was built on slavery. Um, and there was cultural pressure to keep slaves in their place. And so here comes this man, Onesimus, a slave, going back, having stolen from his owner, right? Lowest social class, right? Stigma placed on Philemon to keep him in his place. And Paul is saying, no, no, he's no longer a slave. <laughs> he's a brother. All right? There's the, that's the situation. You can feel the tension. And the beauty of the scriptures that tell us in Galatians 3.28 that there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you all are one in Christ Jesus. We're not to be respecters of persons based on our class, our background, our histories. And we are careful to love the least of these. Now, as this all plays out in front of us in this letter, we're going to see the Christian people. Here's the church, right? You've got Paul, an apostle, an authority leader in the church. You've got a wealthy business owner. And you've got the lowest class person in society, a slave. And these three are making up the church here, right, in this picture. These three people are all believers in Jesus. And so we'll see encouragement, we'll see comforting, we'll see loving, confronting, serving, all things that go on in healthy Christian relationships. And we see Paul giving instructions to business dealings, to uh, social status, to legal issues, to restoration and forgiveness, with Jesus at the center of all of this, right? Jesus needs to be in the center of this mess. And it really is instructive to us as God's people that in our business dealings and as we deal with social issues and as we deal with legal matters and as we deal with people we need to restore with and forgive, we've got to keep Jesus at the center of those things, right? Today in our culture, what we tend to do is take all of our private business stuff and put it over here and have Jesus over here and we think we can have faith, but that faith doesn't intersect with all these things in our life. And the Bible is going to show us here, and we have to be reminded in our culture that when you are a Christian, it has bearing on everything you do in your life. Every little corner of your life, Jesus has a part of and We keep Jesus at the center of everything uh, we do. <coughs> I was <coughs> out doing a little business uh, in the community yesterday and came across a, a business owner who uh, is a good Christian. I know him well. Um, and he was talking to me about how he... Um, longs to just serve Jesus in his position and just be a light for the gospel. Um, and, and then as I went to the cashier, I'd left him and left him in his office and went to the cashier to pay. The guy said, it's free today. Everything you're buying is free. Um, this is the kind of thing Christians do, right? They, it, it affects their life. It affects how they do business. And that's how we are to live. And, and I love... Philemon 1.6, this has been something that was impressed on me back in the 80s, actually, this verse in this kind of obscure little New Testament book. And, I, and I've had Troy put it up in the, uh, in the uh, that's, okay, so I'll just read it to you. But, the, but look at this. Now, when pastors actually skirt away from the version that, that we're teaching out of and go to a different one, you've got to be a little suspicious. It's still scripture, but this is an NIV translation. It's what I learned it in. It's when it first impacted me. So I'm going to read the verse as I read it 30 years ago, and it just changed my life. But it says, I pray that you may be active 
in sharing your faith so that you will have a full understanding of every good thing we have in Christ. Okay, I want you to hear this. He's saying to Philemon, you need to be active in sharing your faith. And if you're active in sharing your faith, you will grow in your understanding of all that you have in Jesus. You see that? So how do you grow in understanding what you have in Jesus? Share your faith. You see? See, if we aren't obedient, and by the way, that word share is more than just telling the gospel. I think it's living the gospel. It's being generous. It's serving. It's doing kingdom stuff. It's speaking the gospel. But unless you actually live it and do it and speak it, you won't get a grip on what you really have in Jesus. That's the point here. You see? Too many Christians believe, but they don't go and, and, and bravely act and risk serving and speaking the gospel. And therefore, they don't know well what they have in him. There's something about doing the stuff that teaches us about what we have. You see? And I love that verse. And so this is what Paul is saying to Philemon. Look, you've got to do these things, Philemon. You've got to be generous. You've got to be gracious. You've got to be forgiving. Because when you do it, you'll start to find out what you really have in Jesus. You see? And that's what he's telling us to do. So it's so important, um, and I believe it's what Paul is pressing on us here, uh, is that we be people who pursue personal holiness, personal actions that honor God, that are brave and courageous and, and, and filled with, 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 with sacrifice to do them, right? To, to witness for Jesus today comes with a price. But you won't know what you got in Jesus unless you do it. And that's why so many of us just don't get a grip on what we really have because we just refuse or hesitate or don't uh, share and live it as God wants us to, okay? So there, here's the body of Christ, and here's Paul and Philemon and Onesimus, and they're together, and they're going to now interact with each other. Now, there's, there's four relational principles that I want us to look at that we see um, in this text this morning. Uh, the first one is that love is the best motivation for action, and we, and we we see that particularly in verse 8 and 9. It says, accordingly, Paul writes, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required. In other words, I, I could command you to take Onesimus back. I could just command you to do it, right? I've got the authority. Yet, for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you. Okay, and then jumping ahead to verse 14, he said, I prefer to do nothing without your consent. In order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but by your own accord. So, he's saying, okay, finally, I mean, you have a choice here. You have, you, I'm just going to appeal to you. Though this is going to be really hard, this guy stole from you, he ran away from you, you need to receive him back. But I want you to be motivated by love. Not by compulsion, not by demand, but by love. Now, this is important for us as Christians, and I think we know this, <clears throat> but we need to say it, <clears throat> that love and grace are the most powerful change agents, right? Not demands, not threats, not yelling, right? Parents, listen. Love and grace are the most powerful change agents because love motivates us at the core. Love says, you know, I, I, I serve you, I sacrifice for you, I lay down my life for you, I want your very best. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 1.24, I'm, I'm, I'm fighting for your joy. <laughs> the things I'm telling you, the things I'm doing are for your good. That's love. 
And when people give us instructions on love that we know that they're, they're fighting for our good, we are more inclined to follow them. And it's a healthier following of them, right? In fact, it says in verse 21 uh, of Philemon, he says, I'm confident of this, that you'll do even more than I say. That's what love does. When, when we invite people to something because we love them, and we want the best for them, they'll do it, and they'll do it with gusto, and they'll do it beyond what we ask because it's about their best. And that's why the Scriptures tell us in 2 Corinthians 5.14 that it's the love of Christ that compels us. It's the love of Christ that changes us. It's the love of God that roots out sin and makes us entirely different. And so when we get demands or requirements placed on us, we do just the minimum, right? Like when the government asks you to do their t- your taxes at the end of the year, right? I mean, you don't go, well, I'd love to go above and beyond that, right? And I'm just going to give a little extra. Because I love, the guy, the guy, I know the government loves me, right? And I'm going to love them back. We, we don't do this, right? But if a dear friend asks you to do something and they're in really in need and they love you, you're going to go beyond for them. Love motivates us, right? That's how Jesus loved us. He bled to the final drop of his life to give us life. And it compels us to want to serve him and give our lives back to him in every way. Right? Now, there's all kinds of examples. You, I mean, we, we, we see this all the time in our culture, right? Um, have you ever worked for a boss who's all about his ego, all about his status, all about his power? It's all he's about, right? I, I remember these days back in my corporate days. Um, where there would be some of these bosses. I didn't have one, but where they would actually have their bullpen of accountants or engineers or personnel people or whatever out in front of them, and they would all have their backs to the boss who would sit in his office and watch them all. And I just thought, I just would hate to work in that kind of situation for that kind of person. He's all about his power. But God gifted me, and it was one of his gifts to me that was special. Um, early on in my life, my my first boss, I was 22, 23, young and impressionable. And, um, and, and this was a man um, who came in and introduced himself to me. Um, and, and he said, look, it, the first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to move this office that's next to yours and the other engineers that were there. And I'm going to go to another building <laughs> because I don't want to sit here and lord it over you and just watch you and just pick at you. I want to give you space so that you can live and enjoy your work. And then what I just need from you is you to tell me what you need so I can resource you and tell me if this is for sure, this is for serious, it's almost hard to believe, and tell me when you do something good so I can brag about you. Where do you find a boss like that in this world? But that's the boss I had to teach me a little bit what it meant to lead people, I think, in Christian ways. And this man wasn't even a Christian, but he got it. He had genuine affection for us, and he even had the audacity to say he loved us. He does this. And he suffered for us because we were young, arrogant, sometimes stupid engineers and made all kinds of mistakes, and he stayed with us. But that's, that's, that, that's the kind of picture that Paul is painting on how we are to do uh, leadership and how we are to motivate people. And I'm just telling you, I'd do anything for that guy because he loved me. I still call him. Once a year, just to say hi and say thanks. So love is the best motivation for action. <clears throat> Second of all, sin uh, is a battle for all people. Um, this is obvious, but it's also obvious in this text. Because we see um, 
first of all, from Onesimus, um, verse 18, it says, if he has wronged you at all, and he owes you anything, charge it to my account. So he's obviously done something uh, along the lines of stealing, most people think, taking something. Um, we don't know exactly what it was, but something. Furthermore, <laughs> Onesimus is told, don't take this guy back as a slave any longer, but now take him back as a brother. So Philemon, that's Philemon's instructions to Philemon. So he's got some things to, to think about, right? Philemon was a slave owner. Now, he was a godly man. We, he's spoken of highly in this text, very highly in this text. And I think really slavery, we'll talk a little bit more about this, but it's kind of a culturally entrenched sin uh, in the first century. And it wasn't race-based, uh, the kind of slavery we have just abhor in our history, but it was a slavery that was financially driven, where in many cases, people were allowed to live normal lives. They could get out of debt and eventually come back debt-free and live in freedom. So it wasn't all bad. It was a different kind of slavery than we're used to. But still, it was a class system. And these people were looked down upon. There was domination, sometimes mistreatment. And Philemon was a slave owner. And so he had some sins to confess, too. As Onesimus is coming back, now as a Christian, Philemon is a Christian, they're going to meet face to face. They've both got some things to confess to each other. That's what I want us to see. And by the way, isn't that human relationships? No matter what's going on between us, there's things to be worked on, right? Whatever family you wake up in, the number of people that you have under your roof, that's the number of sinners you got there. <laughs> and all the people said, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right? At a sta on our staff table, we got a filter, a big diesel truck filter that sits in the center of our filter. Because once in a while, our mouths get a little out of line at staff, and guess what we do with the filter? Slide it over to the person. You need to filter your words. Right? It's almost mostly a joke. But it has its point, right? We get it. Because we are sinners sitting around that table uh, together. And... Uh, and let me just say this, a whole sermon could be preached this way, but when we see sin and when we see oppression and we see abuse and mistreatment, as Christians, we should stand against it and do everything we can to eliminate it. That's what we want to do. Um, and that is what Paul and the gospel ultimately is aiming for, particularly in, in Philemon's case. Now, look at this doesn't <laughs> in any way relieve Onesimus of his uh, role in this thing. He, his response to the situation, and who knows what all drove him to this, he stole and run, ran, right? Um, and stealing will never be excused by God, no matter what your excuses you might have or make, right? And so he has uh, harmed Philemon, and he is a sinner, and he needs forgiveness. But I, I, I want you to see here, this, there, there's, there's some real crucial truth here, and that is that our responses to the actions of others usually create more problems for us than those actions that those people did to us. In other words, our responses usually get us in way more trouble than what anybody ever does to us that mistreats us in any way. That's really important. Because we can blame all kinds of our actions on all kinds of mistreatments, but all we're doing is poisoning our own soul with those bad responses. Right? I'm mistreated by you, so I'm going to get bitter and get revenge. <laughs> right? Well, that bitterness and revenge is way worse than the mistreatment. Because, see, the mistreatment is on the outside, but the bitterness and revenge 
Now the poison's come inside. <laughs> you see? I'm mistreated by my spouse, so I think I'll look around. Well, the looking around is the worst part of that. Right? I'm in a painful relationship with people, so I'm just going to harden my heart and keep distance. Now you're not loving, right? And that does you more harm than the difficult relationship. So I want us to see, boy, I learned this in counseling school years ago, early on, that our responses to the sins against us do us way more harm than those sins ever did to us. Does that make sense? I hope you hear that. And, and the beauty of, of this coming together, because this is what happens. When, we come, when people come together, we start sinning against each other, right? All you got to do is get in a room with another person and stay there very long, and you start realizing they're a sinner and so are you. And now we got to do something with all of that, right? And that's what we see happening here with Onesimus and Philemon. Okay, the next point is, is the restoration and unity are God's our God-honoring pursuits. Now, uh, the hurts and the offenses, they go all different directions. And by the way, it particularly gets offensive when it has to deal with money, doesn't it? <laughs> this is about money. And uh, when it gets about money, whether it's in the church or in business or personally, we just somehow get more offended. And, and so here we are with, with a business thing that's not going well. Um, somebody stole and we're hurt, right? And there is business at stake here and... There's wounds. And God is saying, look, I, I need you, Paul says to Philemon. I'm going to send Onesimus back, and I need you to receive him like a brother. I need you to restore. I need you to heal. I need you to come together as two Christians who are serving the same king. That's what God wants us to do. Matthew 5, 23 to 25 says this. So if you are offering your gift at the altar, if you're in worship, and there remember that your brother has something against you, Leave your gift at the altar. Stop worshiping and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come back and worship and offer your gift at the altar. That's how serious God is about this thing. God wants us to restore. He wants us to reconcile with people that are, uh, we're at odds with for whatever reason. Psalm 133 verse 1 says, Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell together in unity. Unity honors God, and our love one another shows that we are his disciples. And so whatever we are at odds with each other, in our families or in our co with colleagues at work or in our church, God wants us to try to reconcile. It honors him. And by the way, the gospel is big enough to reconcile any relationship, period. It will in the end eventually, but it can now. It can You've been forgiven by Jesus enormous amounts, and you can forgive. You can release and not pay them back and let them be given to God. And the gospel says that I am both a sinner and completely accepted. That's this powerful combination of humility, where I come from, and strength, who I am now in Jesus. And so when you come to me and say, ah, I see something in your life that you need to work on, and I have that happen periodically, rather regularly by my spouse and my good friends in ministry, I go, yep, <laughs> right? I'm a sinner, right? Doesn't give me excuses. But I, I, you know, no accusation against me, right? Doesn't have at least a fraction of merit, probably. 
Because I sin all the time, more than I know. And not yet I'm fully, completely accepted by God so I can stand in his strength and listen and be encouraged to be different and stand in God's grace. I just I love the power of the gospel to handle people that come and try to reconcile and have things that are hard to listen to said to us. Furthermore, I want you to see, uh, particularly with Onesimus, that you just never give up on people. Here is this man who was uh, a thief, but now he finds Christ, right? And he's been changed by the gospel, and now he's coming back to Philemon. And if you trace the story out through history, you find out that eventually he ends up as bishop of Ephesus. Ignatius writes this. So here's a man, a thief, saved, comes to know Christ. He's going to come back to Philemon. How it goes with Philemon is going to have a big impact on his life. Obviously, it went well. His history continued to progress. He grew in Christ. Eventually, he became the church leader in Ephesus. How we treat people, right, can have a massive impact on how they fare in the future. And so we never give up on them because God's doing something in their life. It's an amazing thing. God never, ever gives up on us when we have a heartbeat. He's drawing us to himself. I remember many years ago, um, a person who was in uh, a church, my church that I was in, uh, got deeply offended at a board meeting, and uh, she was uh, wounded, quit the board, pulled back, stopped serving in the church. And, uh, and, and I was part of the problem. I was at that meeting. And uh, she was bitter and hurt, and it was understandable. Uh, but these principles I knew back then. And so I determined that I was going to go visit her and her husband once a month in their home and just see what happened. And she was mad, and she threw a lot of accusations at me and the church. And I just listened, said, yep, right, there it is, Kevin, yep. And I'm really sorry, and um, God loves you, and I want to help make it right. And I bet it was two years of visiting them once a month. And today, she is one of the really strong, older people in that church, serving Christ, back engaged, back involved, and considers me a close friend. Because God never gives up on people, and God's gospel is enough to heal us, no matter how awful it is and how hard it is. That's what he does. If we give him a chance, it's an amazing thing. Well, finally, in this text, we're going to see that God's sovereignty is a, an encouraging reality. Look at, look at what happens, verse 15. God's sovereignty is an encouraging reality. It says, for this, perhaps, is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever. So Onesimus steals, runs away, and it says, Paul says, uh, this is probably why that all happened, that he might meet me, find Jesus, become a Christian, and now you get him back, not only when I send him back, but you get him back forever. That God is doing something through this, even through thievery and running away, that God is doing something and it was to actually save him, restore him, 
Philemon for you to learn some things and for this man to become a Christian leader. God was at work even through the thievery and the running. It reminds me of Genesis 50, 20, when when, uh, Joseph said, As for you, you meant evil against me, speaking to his brothers, but God meant it for good, to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. And um, Joseph's brothers sold him into slavery. Many of you know the story. Uh, He ended up going to Egypt and ended up becoming a a ruler in Egypt, and then he ends up relieving the famine for the uh, Israelite people, the Hebrew people. And he said, Look, you guys did this against me, and it was evil, and God meant it for good. And, and so there, there's this great grace in relationships with God, that God is still sovereignly doing something. Even though it's difficult between us and another, even though it's difficult with that colleague, even though it's difficult with that family member, God is doing something. He is sovereign. He's not wasting your pain or just making your life miserable. So at some level you can just relax and look for where God is working. And this is such a powerful tool in relationships. It has been one of the most powerful tools that I have found in my life is just to trust in God's sovereignty so that when I am legitimately frustrated with others, when life is difficult, or I'm having a hard time with somebody in my family, God is sovereignly doing something. I need to say, God, what are you teaching me, right? This this person is a tool of God to sanctify me, to change me, to make me better, And when I start to blame my problems on others, (laughs) I need to go, wait a minute. God is probably at work here and doing something with me through this. There's no reason to blame. His hand is behind this. And when I'm angry in my circumstances, my issue might be with God. Because God is the one that has sovereignly let me have those circumstances to change me, sanctify me, grow me, and give me an opportunity to minister his grace to others. You see? And so we can relax and not be bitter, but trust in God's sovereignty and rest in it. And that's what we see going on here. Though there would be lots of reasons for Philemon to be bitter at Onesimus. Paul says, look it, God is doing something great here. You need to receive him back as a brother. All right. Let me close and just talk about where I see the gospel in this. Um, You know, slavery is a common theme in the Bible, isn't it? And and we struggle with it because it's a horrible thing um, and a horrible thing in our history. Um, But the Bible doesn't really shy away from it. Um, And it speaks of it because it provides us some pictures that are helpful for us, actually. It uses all the slavery pictures of the Bible to teach us the gospel. All right, this is important. The Bible likes to use master language, um, where Jesus said in Matthew six twenty four that you will uh, serve only one master. You can't serve two. You can't serve God and money. You're going to either serve one or the other. That, that all of our hearts seek for a master. And the problem with that is, is that we seek for that master in all the wrong places. The Bible calls it sin. And the Bible says we become slaves to sin. There's the picture. See? That's what slavery is a picture of. Something becomes our master and owns us. We serve it. We do anything for it. We lay down our life for it. And in our days... 
whatever we find our identity in, whatever we find our purpose in, whatever we find our richest pleasure in, we will be a slave to that, right? And someone needs to buy us out, right? Someone needs to buy us out and set us free. That's how you get free from slavery. And Paul's the example. He says in verse 18 of this text, if Onesimus owes anything, charge it to my account. I will buy him out. I will take the price. I will pay the penalty so that Onesimus can be free as your brother. See the picture there? It's beautiful. By the way, that's what we should do as Christians. We should absorb pain and suffering and difficulty more than we dish it out. To live the gospel, to join the sufferings of Christ who paid our price, right? There's fellowship with Jesus in absorbing the suffering of dealing with other people's sin. To be gracious to them, that hurts when they've sinned against me. That's what we're to do. And Ben, you can come on up. But this is a picture of Jesus. Because while Paul could pay the price of the debt of what Onesimus owed, nobody but Jesus can pay the price of the debt of sin, which is death. And Jesus died and paid the price for us. We were enslaved by our passions to sin. And Jesus came and he died for us to set us free, showing us the love of God. Jesus took on him our sins. He became the thief. He became the gossip. He became the pervert. He became the arrogant, self-righteous one and took the penalty of that on the cross and he gave us his righteousness. And we stand fully accepted. And when God looks at us, he looks at us as if we are his son. Loved, a son, accepted, delighted in, sung over. And he poured out on Jesus what you and I deserved. And that's the gospel. And that's what Paul did for Onesimus. Paying his price. And what Jesus in much bigger, grander, fuller way did for us we are to enter into the freedom that we have in Jesus fully accepted and we are to make Jesus our master and when you make Jesus your master and nothing else then you're free now you get to live for what you were made to live for which is his glory to love to serve to lay down your life for others which we are made to do like Jesus did for us like Philemon is being encouraged to do for Onesimus. In the gospel, it makes sense. Receive him. He stole from you. Christ has forgiven you. You forgive him. And as he loved Onesimus, history tells us, and received him back, he became a strong witness for the gospel and eventually a pastor in the church of Ephesus. That's what we're to be. That's what we're to do. That's what we're made for, to make a difference for the gospel. And when we do that, we're living. And we do that because of what Jesus has done for us. Let's pray. So our Father, thank you for this great little story that you have preserved for us. Beautiful picture of the gospel. Beautiful picture of how to relate to one another. Beautiful picture of how to 
deal with one another in our struggles and with sin. But thank you that you forgive us. Father, help us to forgive one another. Help us to heal what's broken with us, God. I know that in this day and in this world, it's difficult. So give us the grace to bring unity and wholeness to our relationships. We pray in Jesus' name. what he did for you uh, in your place. What we are deserved is death. Jesus died for you. Uh, receive that. Ask him to forgive you, and he promises to give you eternal life. Um, do that today. If you have any questions about that, please come and speak with us. We'd love to help you know Jesus personally, where you can be set free to live for the king. But many of us, I think, uh, as Christians here this morning, hear the story of Philemon and Onesimus and asking for a restoration of a relationship that was really delicate and really difficult, filled with 
strife and challenges emotionally, I'm sure, and you can relate. You're in a situation where God is kind of tapping you on the shoulder and saying, okay, maybe we need to do a Philemon Onesimus thing here between me and somebody else. But if you're struggling this morning, you're in a relationship that, that there's one out there somewhere that you just want us to pray for before you leave this morning, I want you to stand. Uh, I want to just pray for you and that God will give you grace and strength because I know this is a hard thing. This is a hard sermon, especially if you listen to the Holy Spirit. So if there is something right now where you say, I just need to, by God's grace, go and find healing with somebody, you stand. I'm going to pray for you this morning. Anybody else? Okay, thank you for standing. Let's all stand in support of these people, and let's pray. Father, thank you for what you're doing in our hearts. I pray especially your grace upon these that have stood today that you'll bring healing to their relationships, that you'll give them the grace and the gospel to forgive, that, Father, you'll protect their responses, that their responses will not be harmful, and that, Father, you'd bring a miracle of healing to uh, these people that they are concerned for. Lord, for each one of us uh, in this room, God, we struggle to love well, to serve well, to humble ourselves, and to be gracious in the face of people that hurt us. I pray you'll give us a capacity to do that. Lord, help us to know that in Christ we are fully accepted and so we can confidently admit our faults with one another. And yet, Father, use us to bring healing and help us never to give up on others, God, who you are working in and using us, God, to touch their lives. God, we want to make a difference in the lives of people. And so, God, we give this day to you, these truths to you, to do a great work in our hearts. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Have a great week. Go in his grace.